I'm the pastor here at South Shore Baptist, and thanks so much for giving us your Sunday. Now, real quick instructions. Four-year-old children's church, you are free to hit the road, but there is no GPS this morning, so all the rest of our kiddos are going to hang out in here with us, and if you missed it when you came in, there's an activity packet for you right outside these uh, doors, and so make sure you've got that, and there's a page in there. There's got to be a blank page somewhere where you can draw a picture for me. And I will display it at the Pastor Cody Museum of Fine Art, also known as my office door. And so if you'll draw a picture for me and give it to me after church this morning, I will be so happy. And uh, I will make sure that gets hung up for everyone to see and enjoy. Uh, If you've got your Bible with you this morning, would you please open to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, I want to encourage you to use one of those in the rack, at pew rack in front of you, 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've been studying Timothy for the last few weeks, and we're close to the end of 1 Timothy, and then we're going to finish our summer in 2 Timothy, but 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I want you to take some notes this morning, uh, and keep your Bible open the whole time, and you'll be in good shape. Uh, one quick commercial for next week. Um, we have sermon study guides in the lower lobby and sort of scattered about for you to take home with you today. Uh, next week, we're going to be studying chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, uh, and it has something to say about masters and slaves. And that study guide is going to be really important to set context for understanding these two verses. Uh, and so make sure you grab one of those or jump on the website this week and download it if you don't want to do paper. Uh, and then next week, uh, come in ready to go, and uh, we'll have valuable time in God's Word together. So there you go. All right, First Timothy uh, chapter 5, so we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, the selection and support of leaders, it's an important matter for all kinds of organizations. It's important for the success of any company, uh, for any team, certainly for churches and even governments. And sometimes people get disillusioned with old leadership, and that's seen in the selection of new leadership. For example, in 1931, a brown mule named Boston Curtis was offered as a candidate for a Republican precinct seat in Milton, Washington, and the donkey won the Republican seat 51 to nothing. It was a landslide. In 1967... Uh, An Ecuadorian foot powder company advertised its product, Pulvapies, as an option for mayor. And the foot powder won by a clear majority. In uh, the town of Lajitas, Texas, a mayoral election included the incumbent human, Tommy Steele. Sounds like a pro wrestler's name. Tommy Steele. For mayor. Well, Tommy Steele was up against a trading post wooden Indian, a dog named Buster, and a goat named Clay Henry. And the goat won uh, by far, and goats have been mayors of that town ever since. All elected mayors of a town called Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, have been dogs. Doesn't surprise you, hashtag Kentucky. And in March of this year, in March of this year, a goat named Lincoln was elected mayor of Fairhaven, Vermont, beating a dog named Sammy by two votes. 
So it's goats versus dogs now. Look, it, leadership matters. And when we get disillusioned with leadership, we, we do silly things that make for good headlines. It's important that as a church, we know how to select and care for our leaders. A simple look at Scripture tells us how important this matter is. As the leadership of God's people goes, so goes God's people. Now, the passage we're studying today is all about this matter. It's all about caring for church leaders, selecting church leaders. And you'll remember a few weeks ago, we were at the, when we were at the end of chapter 3, Paul gives his purpose statement for why he's writing this letter. What's the whole point in Paul sitting down and writing this letter to Timothy, who's the leader of the church at Ephesus? He says, I want you to know how the church ought to conduct itself. And so then it should come as no surprise that among all the areas in which a church should pay attention, Paul gives ink to leadership, selecting and caring for the church leaders. Now, I want to admit the obvious about this passage today. It is not the most exciting passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. Not the jazziest. No one's life verse comes from this passage. But that doesn't mean it's any less important. It may not be the flashiest passage. But I would tell you, if we don't take this passage serious, there are significant consequences for the church and for the mission that God has given us to do. Even before we read, I'll just, here's the warning. If we get this wrong, we would put ungodly people in leadership. Uh, We would entertain every little unfounded accusation against our leadership and thus rip leadership apart. Or we would not pursue allegations against leadership and therefore let leaders rip the church apart. We would not hold leaders accountable in their holiness or encourage them in their holiness. If we get this wrong, we'll have a low view of Scripture. We'll say the Bible doesn't guide us as the supreme value for what we're supposed to be doing as a church. If we get this wrong, the blast radius is significant. So just because it's, it, it's not big and flashy doesn't mean it's any less important. It's absolutely vital that we as mature followers of Jesus and as parts of this church that we pay attention to what Paul has to say to Timothy and to us here. So what I want to show you in this passage today are three ways the church cares for her leaders. How's the church to take care of her leaders? And that's what Paul helps us understand this morning. So follow along with me in your Bible as I read 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Paul writes, the elders who are good leaders, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice. Do nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, 
but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. So I want to show you in this passage three ways the church cares for her leaders. It is of utmost importance for the success of our mission. If our goal is to make Christ known on the south shore and beyond, we've got to have this passage on lockdown. We've got to obey it explicitly. So three ways the church cares for her leaders. The first is in appreciation. The appreciation of elders is a way the church cares for her leaders. In verses 17 and 18, Paul speaks to this. He says, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So Paul uses the phrase, verse 17, that these leaders are worthy of double honor. What does that phrase mean? Well, there's been a lot of ink spilled trying to make sense of this phrase. It's something that Timothy understood, something that Paul understood. It's a little harder for us to understand exactly what Paul's referencing here. But what it seems is that Paul is speaking of payment, of monetary compensation. The elders who work hard, and especially at preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor or they're worthy of receiving payment from the church. Now, it's important for you and I to remember as readers of this letter that Paul doesn't just cherry-pick topics at random. He's not just going through some sort of weird mental Rolodex and says, oh, we should cover this and this and this. Everything that he writes is in response to a situation that's happening at the church in Ephesus. So if he brings up the payment of elders, it would seem that there's been a problem there and Paul's trying to correct it. We don't know the exact situation, but it could be that because of the false teachers in the church, the church has overcorrected and said, we're not going to pay anyone to lead us, to teach us, to preach to us. Because we've seen such a bad example, such a negative example of leadership, we're going to swing the pendulum the opposite direction severely, and we're not going to pay anyone. So it could be that Paul here is reinstituting what is actually a healthy practice in the church. Now, Paul gives some qualifications for who should receive payment. He says, one, it should be elders who are good leaders. What constitutes a good leader? Well, if we were just to keep ourselves anchored in 1 Timothy, uh, we could go back to chapter 1, and we find there that a good leader is one who holds to the gospel. And we could go to chapter 3, and there we would find that a good leader is one who has Christ-like character. So Paul says this one should be a good leader, and second, it should be one who works hard at preaching and teaching. Now, I, I think this qualification is important, that the church gives this honor, this appreciation to those who preach and teach, because it speaks to that which is most valuable in the church. What is it that drives us organizationally? What, what is worth pooling our resources together and applying them towards? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we're saying what we need is we need the word given to us. We need to be held to the gospel. We need elders who are held by the gospel. That's what's most valuable, most important to us. 
So there's a value statement here. If the church gives this double honor to those who preach and teach Scripture, the church is saying we value the Word of God supremely. So it's not enough to have a preacher who is merely entertaining. And it's not enough to say, well, this this guy draws a crowd. Those are not evidences of God's favor, necessarily. Gospel faithfulness is the metric that matters from our teachers. Does he give us the word of God? Does he hold us to it? Does he call us to it? Does he live by it himself? Now, it's going to be hard as a church to hold to a high value of the gospel if you yourself individually don't live for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if your life hasn't been transformed by the gospel also. So it's important that when we read this passage, we ask questions of ourselves. If this is a value in the church, that that we would put the preaching of God's word and gospel faithfulness as supreme, is that going to be true in my life also? And this is the story that changes everything. The story of Jesus who came to us. He's God in the flesh. And he came for a distinct purpose. That was to die in our place for our sin. He's the one that we've sinned against. Our sin has separated us from him. And there's nothing we can do to make up that separation or to correct it or to fix it. I can't be good enough. Can't be nice enough. Can't do enough good deeds. My record, my account is filthy, dirty. The... the the verdict against me is right and that verdict is guilty. Guilty of sin against God. So God takes it on Himself to rescue us from our sin and the punishment that it requires. That's why Jesus comes. Jesus, God comes to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. It's the punishment that we deserve for our sin. But the sinless, eternal Son of God dies for the sins of of his people, and three days later he rose from the dead. That he rose from the dead means that those who trust in him can have their sins forgiven, eternal life. That broken relationship with God is repaired forever. We're saved by grace through faith. And so at the very beginning of this passage, we're called to evaluate our own lives and to cling to the good news for ourselves. And granted, it might not be the most exciting passage of Scripture in the Bible, but it can be a life changer if you would give your heart and your soul to Jesus Christ this morning. So Paul calls us as a church to love the gospel and to put in place leaders, to appreciate leaders who give us the gospel. I love the quotes that Paul uh, Paul uses in verse 18 to help drive home his point. Look at it with me. Verse 18, Paul says... For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. So in other words, uh, the preaching pastor is like an ox or a day laborer. These seem like apt uh, descriptions. I have certain bovine qualities about me. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. Paul's two quotes here in verse 18. Look, this is brilliant. Uh, They come from Deuteronomy chapter 25, the one about the ox. The second one, the worker is worthy of his wages, comes from Luke chapter 10. Now, it's not a surprise that Luke would, or excuse me, that Paul would quote from the Old Testament, 
But it is extraordinary that Paul quotes the teaching of Jesus with the same weight and authority as the Old Testament. Remember, this is before the printing press. This is when the word was transmitted orally and then it was written and copied and spread around that way. And so by the time Paul writes these words, maybe just about 30 years after the death of Jesus, we have evidence that already the words of Jesus are being codified. They're already being written down and they're being distributed among the churches. So this is brilliant. If, if you ever need help thinking about the faithfulness of the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures, or you're in a conversation with a friend who has questions about the validity of the scriptures, this verse is so vitally important to show that the early church held to the authority of Old Testament and the words of Jesus and the words about Jesus. This is a big deal. So Paul says, with these principles, let's take care of the leaders that we've put in place to take care of us. How do Paul's instructions align with the practices of our church? Do we pay all of our elders? Well, no, we don't pay all of our elders. And it's likely that the church in Ephesus did not pay every single elder either. But those who were specially tasked with serving the church full time or in a way that kept them from being able to work as much as others. Now, South Shore Baptists, we pay our pastors and ministry leaders who've committed to serve the church full time. And I think it's okay for me to speak on behalf of all of us to say thank you. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for allowing us to serve you full time, to give all of our attention to the church, to our faith family, and to the work that Christ has given us to do. And I want to thank you for the many ways you show appreciation that go beyond uh, a paycheck, but it's just in words of encouragement and comfort uh, that you give to us on a a constant basis. Um, You're so kind to tell me quite frequently at the end of a service, hey, good job, preacher. You're also quite kind to save your bad job preachers for the car ride home. That's very sweet of you, and I appreciate it. Um, But you're a church that Uh, overflows with encouragement and uh, i appreciate that so very much just this morning i come in and someone said uh when are you going on vacation you've been around too much you and your family need time together that is sweet sweet encouragement um and so august is the answer but um but that someone would be concerned and would ask that question Uh, shows a depth of love and maturity in your care uh, for those who serve you. Thank you for that. Uh, I want to point out one other way that we as a church do well to give double honor to those whose work it is to make Christ known. And that is in our missions giving. So when we give for the sake of our missionaries, here's what... Here's the kind of missionary we want. We want a missionary who has every financial need met so they don't have to spend time traveling and raising support and they can give their heart, soul, and strength to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of missionary we want. That kind of missionary needs a church like us to give well and faithfully. And so I'm grateful that we do give well to our missionaries. Some churches operate according to the old adage, whether it's with missionaries or staff, God, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. 
And that's just dumb. Uh, what we want is we want to empower these brothers and sisters to make Christ known where he's not known. I'm proud to be a tither to a church with those kinds of priorities. I hope you are as well. So how do we care for our ministry leaders, for our elders? We do so through appreciation. There's a second way that Paul identifies we care for church leaders, for our elders, and that is by protection. The protection of elders is an important matter. Verses 19 through 21, Paul bullet points three different ways the church provides protection to her elders. The first way the church protects her elders is with fairness. Verse 19, Paul speaks of fairness. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. So Paul provides this sort of uh, due process in handling accusations against elders. Elders and church leaders are susceptible to these types of accusations. They might range from just innocent speculation to outright intentional lies. And did you know that there are some pretty big names in the Bible who also endured false accusations? People like Moses and David and Jeremiah and Paul and Jesus. So it's a thing. It can happen. Paul instructs Timothy and the church to reject unfounded allegations, he says, unless that allegation is accompanied by two or three witnesses. This is not a standard that Paul invented. It's a standard that comes from the Old Testament. You go back to Deuteronomy 19 and you'll find it there. Also, you'll find Jesus referenced this same uh, sort of measure in Matthew chapter 18. Two or three witnesses to help support an accusation. Now, here's where we want to be very careful. There are some accusations that may come against an elder that come from just one voice. And the fact that it comes from just one voice does not mean we write it off as illegitimate. Paul's intention here is that we would investigate carefully every accusation, every allegation that would come against our elders. So we want to be careful, though, that we don't put them in a place, put leadership in a place where they can't be trusted or they feel constantly under attack or where unfounded accusations are given um, traction in church conversations. So we want to protect them, but we want to consider those allegations very seriously. You see, elders are not beyond accusation. They've got to be protected from illegitimate accusation. Consider the work of an elder. Elders have to confront sin, expose sin, address hidden issues, call people to holiness. Just name sin, sin. And those elders can't be left at the mercy of frivolous accusations. However, elders, ministry leaders, do not receive immunity from biblical confrontation. So the second way the church protects elders is with accountability. Verse 20 is all about accountability. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. So when an accusation against an elder is true, that elder must be rebuked publicly. The public rebuke is not just in front of other elders, nor can we use this sort of thinking, well, it was a private sin, therefore the confession must be made or kept public, or excuse me, kept private. Um, Paul doesn't give us options here. When an elder commits a disqualifying sin, 
that elder must be rebuked publicly. The intention here is not shame. It's not just an opportunity for the church to cast hate and dispersion upon the offending brother. There are other goals here. The number one goal for the brother in sin is that he would confess that sin and he would repent and return to Jesus Christ. We saw that earlier in the letter at the end of chapter one. You remember Paul talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander, these two church leaders who he said, I've, I've handed over to Satan. Well, Paul's intention there is not that they would just be cast into the lake of fire forever, but that they would, they would see the error of their ways. They would turn and run to Jesus Christ. So public accountability, public rebuke for disqualifying sin is a a serious matter for the church to practice. And it might sound harsh, but remember, this is a consistent standard throughout Scripture. James chapter 3, verse 1. We studied it some time ago. James writes, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. So those who have aspirations to serve in church life it's, it's right to be motivated by the appreciation, the honor that the church shows its leaders. But also you must be so careful because those leaders who sin are to be removed and publicly re, re, uh, rebuked. There is high accountability here. Why publicly? Paul says uh, they should be rebuked publicly so that the rest will be afraid. Who's the rest? Well, the rest are other elders. That's who he has in view, other leaders of the church, that they should be afraid. Now, look, motivation comes in all kinds of different packages. Sometimes it's beauty and goodness and joy and reward that might be the good motivation. And sometimes it is the fear of the judgment of a holy God that keeps a man's heart anchored to holiness. If we care about our other elders, then the offending elder will be rebuked publicly for his repentance and for the sake of the holiness of those who lead us. Uh, A third way the church protects its elders, fairness, accountability. Third way is impartiality. Verse 21, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. So Paul is as serious about this issue as he is about anything. How do you get a sense of Paul's seriousness? Well, first of all, he charges or he warns Timothy. I solemnly charge you. Second, he calls on divine witnesses. I charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Here's the witnesses to what I'm about to tell you, Timothy. And you've got to own this and be owned by it in front of God, Christ Jesus, the elect angels. Who are the elect angels? We don't know exactly what Paul's referring to here. It could be that these are angels who have been selected by God for a distinct purpose, uh, for for service to the church. We don't know. But these chosen angels chosen for this task the bottom line is not who are they the bottom line is timothy these are the people that are hearing and watching the work that you have to do and so timothy i charge you in front of all of them to observe these things without prejudice so when it comes to evaluating accusations against an elder 
do it without prejudice. Do it fairly and objectively. And also, at the end of verse 21, do nothing out of favoritism. Again, a recurring theme among leadership in the New Testament uh, and a serious, serious issue in the church. Do nothing out of favoritism. So if Timothy is called to an accusation against an elder, he's not to prejudge the case. And he is to administer true justice regardless of who the person is standing in front of him. That takes real courage. It's really hard to do that. I've only had to do it once in my ministry so far. I hope to never have to do it again. But in a different church, in a different place, um, a fellow pastor committed a disqualifying sin. And when I went to our decision makers with the situation, there was a debate about whether or not we would go public with this matter. And the fear was, if we go public, what are we, what are we saying about ourselves? We're, we're exposing our dirty laundry to everyone. It will hurt our reputation in the community. Plus, don't we bear a ministry responsibility to this brother who, though he has sinned seriously, um, we shouldn't just beat him up and destroy him. But God's word spoke. And we spoke publicly of the disqualifying sin to our church family. It was awful. It is a horrible thing. And there was significant backlash from church people that didn't understand. Why would we act this way? Why would we be so mean? But we weren't being mean. We were being biblical. Uh, What I learned after the fact was that that brother, though he had confessed to much, had not confessed to everything. And had we not followed Scripture in this regard, we would have enabled him to continue to commit spiritual violence against himself, against his family, and against his faith family. And I'm dear friends with this brother today. We talk quite often. He's an important person in my life. And he said... Uh, After the fact, if the church hadn't held to the word in this way, I would have continued running in my sin. There's no way I was ready. So it's hard. It takes real courage for us as a church to hold leaders in these regards, to protect them, to hold them accountable, to be fair with them. But this is where we trust the word of God so that leadership reflects Jesus Christ in as much as it can. So the church takes care of leaders with appreciation, with protection, and finally, with discernment. This last section here on discernment is about how we select or how we appoint leaders in the church. And so Paul tells Timothy, verse 22, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. So Timothy has to be careful not to appoint someone prematurely. This is where favoritism could come in. Someone who's really popular with the church but lacks spiritual maturity or character sufficient to lead the church. Paul says, don't put that brother in place. Because there's consequences. You will share in his sin. If you appoint leaders who don't fall in line with biblical prescriptions, then you share in the sin that they commit. And then we get to verse 23. Uh, which for many Baptists is the worst verse in all of the Bible. You may not know Baptists historically are anti-alcohol in a really severe way. Verse 23, 
don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. It's a weird parenthetical statement by Paul. If you will go back and read this, if you were, if you were to take verse 23 out, you would never even miss it. Verses 22 and 24 connect perfectly in terms of subject matter. So this seems like a strange uh, insertion by Paul. Again, here's a situation where Timothy has assumed knowledge. Paul has assumed knowledge, but we don't. But here's what we seem to know about the situation. Timothy was abstaining from wine for some purpose. It could be that he was abstaining in order to maintain some personal purity. Uh, And perhaps he's doing so, or perhaps abstaining from wine and increasing his water intake made him more susceptible to bad water water that would make you sick. Not too many Brita filters in first century Turkey. And so Paul's instruction possibly was not just for physical health, but perhaps also for spiritual health, releasing Timothy from legalistic restrictions. Remember, that's a a key aspect of this false teaching component in Ephesus was a dietary restriction. Don't eat these foods and you're automatically going to gain favor with God. It could have been the same here with the alcohol. Well, now in 2019, if you have a tummy ache, I, I would recommend Pepto before Pinot Noir, Kopectate before Cabernet, Zantac before Zinfandel, or Rolades before a Riesling. I mean, we've got options. Don't medicate. <laughs> Paul's goal is that Timothy would be as healthy a leader as possible in order to carry out the hard work that God's given him to do. Paul's other instructions to Timothy here at the very end of the passage is that he would take his time in weighing the character of people he might appoint as leaders in the church. Verse 24, some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Give it time, Timothy. Don't be in a rush to put people uh, in charge of the flock. Some sins will be obvious. Others just come out over time. Verse 25, likewise, good works are obvious. And those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. It's someone's good works are going to be seen. That stuff bears fruit. It's seen. It's talked about and it's known. (coughs) The point is that Timothy is only to put in places of leadership Those people who have a long obedience in the same direction. That's the goal. Not who's most popular. Not who has the right pedigree. Not who has the family name or the history in the church. Who has the character of Christ. And who is owned by the gospel. And who is known known for a life of godliness. Those are the leaders we want. A story that's probably not true is told about a a newly appointed colonel during the Gulf War. And he was just getting unpacked at his new assignment when out of the corner of his eye, he noticed a young private coming towards him, carrying a toolbox and wanting to seem important. The new colonel picked up the phone and he goes, yes, General Schwarzkopf. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think that's an excellent plan. You got my support on it. Thanks, Norm. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. And... The private walked up and the colonel said, what can I do for you? And he said, I'm just here to fix your phone. (laughs) (laughs) Characters revealed 
over time. And we want those types of leaders in place. Um, this is a way you can pray for your church right now. As we're looking for a new youth pastor, it's one of our concerns. We want a man who has character proven over time. Not just checks some random subjective profile we've put together necessarily. Does he look like Christ? Is he owned by the word? Is he known over the course of his life to walk with Jesus and to love Jesus? Pray for us in that endeavor. So Paul has given us these instructions for how to care for leaders in the church. We do it with appreciation, with protection, and with discernment. These are utmost matters. How important? So important, Paul says, I charge you in front of God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. He calls the, the heavenly throne room to attention whenever he gives us these instructions. Now, at the beginning of my message, I offered a warning of what might happen if we ignore this or if we get this wrong. But I also want to encourage you by describing the blessing that happens when we get this right. We'll be a church with a high view of Scripture. We'll be a church that's fair with elders, that holds them accountable, that applies justice fairly. We'll be a church with godly, mature leaders whose lives reflect Jesus inside and out. And when the church is made up of gospel-shaped people who insist on selecting and caring for gospel-anchored leaders, well, then you have a church that is positioned to push back the boundaries of hell for the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's be that kind of church. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word to us. Uh, we feel the weight of Paul's instruction here, and we know how important it is that we get this right. So I want to thank you for the mercy you've shown us in giving us this direction for how to operate in these most important areas. We know that the goal of getting this passage right is ultimately the salvation of souls. The mission of the church isn't accomplished through ungodly leadership or an ungodly congregation. We want to be these people who are owned by your word through and through. Um, Father, we take this chance to pray for our elders and for our ministry leaders. God, would you protect them in their holiness? Would you grip their hearts? Would you give us humility as we walk with you privately that we might serve publicly? Father, thank you for the church that encourages her ministry leaders and her elders and that prays for them. And God, I pray that as you unite us more and more to the gospel, as you align us more and more with holiness and godly living, that we would see the fruit of that in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So let our adherence to this passage result in the gospel shared and the gospel believed for the sake of the souls of many around us. Lord, help us to be this church that reflects your maturity, your holiness, and a trust in you, even in the hardest of situations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this morning, uh, we're going to respond to this passage by taking the Lord's Supper. And uh, I love the way the Lord's Supper meets us in every 
type of scripture and in every season of life. It's a call to remember. And what are we remembering? We're remembering Jesus who laid down his life for us. Uh, This is the story that compels us in the way our church looks and the way our church functions. And above all, it's the story that we remember in order to worship and praise God. Sometimes we come to this moment with feverish prayers of confession. Dear God, forgive me for all my sin. And then we eat and drink. This is a time to remember the grace that God has given us. The salvation that's ours. Something that we always think is important to mention is that we don't come to the table in order to be saved. We come to the table because we are saved. Salvation is by faith, not by chewing, not by drinking. Salvation is by trusting in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for us. And so we welcome all believers, all followers of Jesus to eat and drink with us this morning. And if you're not, uh, or if for whatever reason you choose not to participate, um, we encourage you when the elements come your way just to pass them to your neighbor. We trust that in your walk with the Lord, in your walk towards the cross, uh, that you you participate as is appropriate. And so I want to ask our elders to come on down at this time. And we're going to worship by eating and drinking together.